looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Looking for good ideas for life, you are far from good hands. If you think the listener is always right, you are far from the right place. Hosted by Northeasterner by birth, a rebel by choice. If you want a host that floats between love and madness, then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy Train Radio? You look like hell. And I could look the same. What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Truth, 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 I'm one crazy nerf Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, I'm Scott Morrison. Please listen to Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Well... 
Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. This next little uh, nugget that I came across and happy to speak with the author about hits me at home for a couple different reasons. First being sports and the great sport of hockey, but it also touches on my history background. So certainly it seems like a repetitive circle when we jump into the topic, but our next guest, as I was starting to say there, has this new book out there that certainly shows how politics intersects with sports. The new book is called 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. And it's celebrating its 50th anniversary of Canada's victory over the then USSR in the tense eight game summit series. The author who is a veteran commentator and highly well respected, especially when I spoke to a friend of the show, Liam McGuire, he couldn't speak highly enough about you, but this next guest, Scott Morrison, Scott, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jonathan and Liam's a, a great guy himself. So it's, uh... Nice to receive high praise from him. And yeah. great to be with you here today. Absolutely. And it, it's funny when, of course, hockey, anything hockey related, I invite it, you know, Liam to be a part. He said, no, 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 it's your baby. It's just that the other. Respectful as always, but because I'm putting him over, I better get a beer out of this next time I see him. That is for sure. So, 1972. This little gem here that I got in my hand. Since it came out, what's the response been? And is it what you expected to be when started put this project together? The response has been phenomenal. And I'm excited to say and share with you and your audience that uh, we've been out seven weeks now. And every week we've been on the bestseller list in Canada. And uh and this week, we're, we've been usually three or four, mostly number three. And this week, we are number one bestseller in Canada. So it's uh, been hugely exciting in that respect. And so that's a personal feeling. Uh, but in a bigger picture, it also excites me because 1972 was a huge moment in hockey history and Canadian hockey history, Soviet hockey history. And that people want to know more about it or relive the moment. It depends on you know, what your age is and the vintage. If you're a certain vintage, you know where you were when those events unfolded and for others to want to, to learn about it and, uh, and to uh, experience a piece of history is, uh, has been phenomenal too. And, and ultimately what's really pleasing because the players that were involved have all been so very, very accommodating uh, to, towards me and, and for this book. And to see that they're being remembered and acknowledged is uh, that's maybe the most exciting part of it because they deserve to be because both teams, they were heroes. They were really hockey heroes. Well, speaking of players, and we're going to dive deep into this. But you had Phil Esposito, the hockey legend, do the fort for the book. And obviously, he was a big part of that team. Yeah. So was it easy to convince Phil to 
do a forward for you? It was. He was uh, very much. He's a big supporter of that whole 72 alumni group and wants everybody to be acknowledged and be acknowledged at the same level. And, uh, you know, I'd initially kind of thought about the concept of doing the book around Phil, but he wanted it to be about the team, not about an individual. And I thought that was a really commendable um, thought and approach, but he said that he would definitely help with uh, writing the forward. And obviously I'd spent several hours interviewing him for the book and he's in there all the way through and forthcoming and honest and, and telling everything that kind of went on at the time as, as, only Phil can, and but many others did too. And so, uh, yeah, there's a real feel for that group that they want this not to be forgotten. And it's easy. We all know what history is about. And you said, Jonathan, you're a history buff, but sometimes we forget and or we don't remember just enough. And I think this is really something that needs to be celebrated and remembered and so far, so good. So I hope when September comes around and the anniversary dates of the games and all of that, that uh, that there's even a bigger celebration. What's sad right now on so many levels, obviously what's happened with Russia and Ukraine, but because of that, um, there won't be, an, uh, I don't think, an ability to celebrate it on both sides of the pond the same way that they might have and have done on other anniversary dates. So that's, that's a shame for the players, but uh, it's great that they'll be remembered for this. As many things change, it's ironic that many things stay the same. And obviously you got to production and writing this book before the whole Ukraine situation has started and such, and we're not a political show. So I leave that to those folks but I do have a history background and degree and whatnot. And one of my shelves here is full of his, several of them are political books, uh, presidents and different historical topics. So I'm very kind of keen with, yeah, you know, I'm just one of those few that's very fascinated about it. So I, I like how the book kind of meshed because there was, like I said, it, it was more than just, the sport of hockey. So, you know, the background of that series was the politics of the day on yeah. both sides of how that whole thing came together. Because, you know, as I write in the book and, and, you know, Ken Dryden and others shared their thoughts on it at the same time is that, you know, Canada had gone through a really tough time. They've gone through a wonderful time with 1967 and Centennial, the 100th anniversary of the country celebration, 100th birthday rather, um, and Expo 67 and all of that. And 19, the, the early 70s came around and it was a troubled time because we had a, a, the Quebec crisis, the FLQ crisis and uh, kidnappings and murders and the War Measures Act. And the country was a divided place and it needed to come together somehow. And the prime minister, ironically named Trudeau, same as today, but uh, Pierre Trudeau, he knew from that hockey was the one thing that could bring a country together. And, and, and I don't think anybody at that level anticipated the series was going to be what it was, but it was going to be a celebration of our greatness as, as a hockey country. 
And it was going to be something that would help bring the country together. And it ultimately did. It unified the country in a much different way than, as they say, was first envisioned. And from the Soviet side of it, you know, back then, and maybe it still exists today, but the Iron Curtain was still up then. And, you know, communist countries, we didn't know a lot about them other than they were this evil image that we saw in black and white newsreels and on the six o'clock or 11 o'clock news and we feared them and but they also knew that they were dominating international hockey and Canadians couldn't because we couldn't send our best players but they wanted to send a message to the world that because they were dominating that they were as good as us and and back then that the, the prevailing thought was whether it was in an Olympics whether it was track and field or anything else that if you could put your athlete on a podium and put a gold medal around their neck, that that was a way to tell the world that your system was somehow better than everybody else's, that your politics were better, that your way of life was better. And so that was part of the prevailing sentiment and undercurrent that was part of that series. And it wasn't supposed to be that way in the beginning, but it certainly got that way very quickly when we found out that the Russians, the Soviets could play at our level, at the Canadians level, the NHLers level. And it became so much more dramatic because of that. But there was a lot of political statements behind that series that became involved very quickly and made it as even more dramatic than it, than it was as just a hockey series. It was a way of life series back then. And it's funny that when you go throughout sports history, and I'm not talking just hockey, whether you look at something like Jesse Owens in the Olympics or yeah. this case or, you know, the miracle on ice and just different time periods of history that you see that theme a lot in terms of uh, the two well, tied together. Right before the series started, the whole you know, North America and uh, Europe and the Soviets were engrossed in, of all things, a chess match between an American Bobby Fischer and a Soviet Boris Spassky, because it was all about, again, the bragging rights of saying, we're, we're better than you. It wasn't, we're not smarter at chess. We're better than you in the bigger picture. And so the world was engrossed by that prior to the 72 series starting. And, and, and how many times would you sit down and say, the world's going to stop and look at a chess match and make that, you know, not to disrespect chess players because I'm not smart enough to be one, but, you know, just that tells you the temperature of the world at that time. And I say this in tongue in cheek, take politics out of it. I'm from the Philadelphia area and the running joke for many years. And obviously you would be familiar with like, Flyers fans and different things. But the running joke was always for years here that we would tailgate a Twitter links or chess match if we could, because that's how passionate we were about whatever the competition was, whether we'd be playing uh, quarters or chess or into a professional sport. Didn't matter. We were, let's go, passionate about the competition. So. But I do want to mention that's what the sentiment was at at that time. I mean, it was just like you had to show that you were 
you know, it was capitalism versus communism, democracy versus communism and all the rest of it. And, and it, we were, you know, it, that's what ultimately came into play that we had to just show one side had to show the other that they were better. And, and that's, that's what I was going to say. As the series of all uh, unfolded after game one, it was almost like the, the Soviets in, in a way won the series because they proved that they could play at our level. And that was sort of their defining moment. And then it became the Canadians defining moment to find a way to get back and, and win that series. Cause they had to win that series. Exactly. I do want to mention, I do want to mention before we dive more into the series and such in the book and all that fun stuff. Say, so I want to introduce kind of your background to the audience who might be picking this up. Now, Scott, has been providing colorful commentary and analysis since 1979 when he started covering the Maple Leafs and the NHL for the Sun, or I should say, yeah, the Toronto Sun up there. And of course, he's been involved with Hockey Night in Canada, CBC, TV and radio. Just like I said, everybody knows our buddy Liam and speaks so highly of Scott. So Scott has some cred. You, are you still in the Toronto area? I am. Yep. Right on. Born so. and raised, still here. Right on. So there is a lot of credibility when it comes to speaking the, not only the game of hockey, but specifically Team Canada and everything else like that. So when did you decide you wanted to start jumping into putting this book together? Well, I wrote a book. Uh, about the series leading up to the 20th anniversary and the title of that book was the days Canada stood still uh, because we literally Canada stood still during those final four games especially of the series time we were a country of roughly I think we're in close to 40 million now but we we're about 25 million people at the time and the estimates were that 16 million out of 25 were watching those those games during the series and I we all know vivid images of at the time I was in school I got to stay home my parents were nice that way uh, but rolling TVs in the school rooms and gymnasiums and people standing on the street uh, you know offices would shut down and people would stand on the street and walk through the windows of department stores with all the TVs with the with the images of the game on because the, the Moscow games were in the afternoon Eastern time. And so the country did stop. And so I wrote a book up to leading up to the, the 20th anniversary, but with the 50th coming up, uh, you know, working with my agent, my publisher, the idea kind of came up to say that none of us are getting any younger and this needs to be revisited one more time because 50 obviously being a special number and, you know, we've lost too many of, of the players and coaches already that this might be the last sort of time to, to have a voice for those, for all of them that were involved, but also to have a voice with a much different perspective than they had leading up to the 20th. And, and so much has changed in what their thinking has been and their appreciation for the other guys and, 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 also wanting to tell stories that maybe they didn't want to tell after 20 years, but uh, they want to make sure that nothing's left on the table 
uh, you know, before we all depart. So, um, so it was just kind of thinking that this is a special, special thing. And because it is such a big moment, a big series and moments in, in again, Canadian history period, but also hockey history that it, it, it need to be revisited one more time and, and, and get to these guys and get a newer perspective. And as they say, and, um, and to share some different stories and newer stories that they might not have wanted to say back then. And, you know, it's history. And so this book is really a history book and, and I, and I hope it serves both teams well in terms of being the, the capability of being remembered forever. I mean, it's, it, it, they deserve to be. Well, what would you say the biggest change in perspective was that you noticed between the 20th anniversary and today coming up on the 50th? They hated each other, even coming up to the 20th. They still hated each other. And as time has marched on, and it was ironically around the 20th anniversary that they, they had an alumni event where uh, the players played each other. And uh, there's a series through Toronto, uh, through Canada, and I want to say Hamilton and Toronto, Montreal and Ottawa. And it was after a game in Ottawa that uh, Brad Park, one of the Canadian stars on defense, saw it wasn't the Soviet coach from the series, but it was another Soviet coach. And this was an alumni game. And it was, you know, I want to call it a beer league, but, you know, it, it wasn't a series. It wasn't mm-hmm. intense. And the one coach slapped one of the, the Soviet players saying, why are you fraternizing with the Canadian guys? And, and Park saw this and with another player went up to the coach and grabbed him and said, no, you don't do that. That's, Word. This isn't what this is all about. And they convinced the Soviet players that night that once they got back to the hotel, the buses arrived, they get out of the hotel and jump on the Canadian bus. And they went across the river from Ottawa to Hull, Quebec. And they, they went into an establishment and they sat there and they drank beers and vodkas and, and they told stories and they commiserated and they became friends. They, they, that was when detente was finally arrived between those two teams. And they, they understood that they were both trying to accomplish the same thing. And as much because of, again, our lack of understanding of world politics and all of that at the time, that, you know, the Soviet players weren't evil. They were just doing what they had to do to survive in their environment. And they understood what the Canadian players were all about. And, and then they became friends after that. And they've had some wonderful celebrations over the years for for the anniversaries but it took a time for that to happen and it's in this book that they share how much they understand each other now and and some of the the stories and the and the events that went on afterwards and just and I, again a, a different perspective of you know we all get somewhat smarter with time and perspective and and how they've learned more about how that series impacted all their lives. And it's amazing. And you notice it with the game of hockey, and I'll explain that thought process in a second. But it's amazing that you can, it took sitting down at an establishment, having a couple of drinks with each other, you know, sharing stories and different perspectives and stuff to, you know, to open up the lines of communication there to really 
Okay, everybody could take a deep breath. Okay, guys, let's, you know. But I do want to bring up as well a little history nugget here. Since the 50s, at the time, the Soviet Union wanted to challenge the West in sports and whatnot, not in many other areas. But the Soviets were considered a professional team. And this was kind of mentioned earlier where whether it be in Olympics and different types of international competition, NHLers from Canada weren't playing in these tournaments. It was all amateurs. So this was a different feel for getting professional players to play in this thing in this eight game series. Cause I know there was a lot of heat from some of the guys. Cause you know, you had guys from Boston and New York and these different NHL teams going, what are you playing? We need you for camp because things were getting ready to rev up in September and such to start the regular season. Am I uh, off on that? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, the, the, the Canadian team ended up have players from 10 different NHL teams. And back then, unlike today, I mean, it's not that NHL players don't compete hard and, and want to hurt each other when they go out and, and win. But there was no camaraderie back then. Like if you played for the Rangers, you didn't talk to somebody who was on Boston or you talk, you played for Montreal. You didn't talk to anybody. They hated each other and they didn't, there was no, no camaraderie off the ice between. So a big challenge for that team at the time was a everybody accepting to come and then be coming together as a team. And it wasn't until they started losing that they realized that, well, we better forget where we came from in terms of NHL teams and start playing for the, the crest on our chest. And so that was a big uh, challenge going into that series. And again, the NHL players have been told that, you know, this was going to be nothing more than a romp. You were, it was the first time best on best because as, as you mentioned, Jonathan, is that the Soviets were, you know, they were deemed to be amateurs by definition, but they all worked for the, the they've all played by and large for the Central Ren Army. They were all part of the, the army system and their, their, their station was to play hockey, not to fight wars and do all that sort of stuff. And they trained year round and they were, they became great. And the Soviets were late to coming to hockey uh, towards, as you mentioned, in the fifties and they dominated and they wanted to take it to another level and prove to the world that they could play the very best. And uh, as, as many people mentioned in the book that they didn't walk into that series as blind as many Canadians did. They knew that they could compete and they surprised the Canadians because we didn't know what was coming. Some people advised that it could be much tighter, tougher series, but it was advertised to the players that it was going to be like an exhibition game after game after game. And when you think about it, in the middle of that series, they played four games in Sweden, which you would never do if you were playing a serious series. That was supposed to be a little vacation stop for them. And they played a game after game eight uh, in Czechoslovakia. So Stan Makita could play in his native country why would you do that if you were thinking you wouldn't play the seven game Stanley Cup final and have a, well, let's do an exhibition game in New Jersey next week, you know? <laughs> exactly. So that's that sort of gives you a, a feeling of how underestimated the intensity of that series was going to be from the Canadian side of it going into it. Now, how would you describe it, 
game itself, because when we're talking, and obviously I come from an area of the Broad Street Bullies and such, but on this side of the world, especially at that time, and I say this tongue-in-cheek, I think a slap shot and all, but we were bumps and bruises and rough, rough and tumble over here, where we didn't mind getting into a fight on the ice and stuff, then having a beer afterwards, going, okay, hey, it's we're good, you know, it's part of the game, where the Russians at the time were more of a, a speed and skill type of game. So how did you think the styles clashed and of the game itself? Yeah, I mean, I think... And I, I write about it in the book and, and, and Bobby Clark, who you, everybody in Philadelphia knows very well and, you know, talked about it a lot is I think we were, the Canadians understood they had to get physical uh, to compete in that series, especially because the Soviets were in much uh, better condition going into the series back in those days, you know, the NHLers didn't, they didn't train in the off season. That's what training camp was for. You went to training camp for 30 days and you got in shape and then you were ready to go in the summer. A lot of those guys worked. They had hockey camps. They worked as promotional guys for breweries and companies and things like that. And there wasn't ice available and, and all the rest of it. So they, they realized after that first game, the shocking loss in Montreal seven to three, that they had to adjust and they had to be a little more physical and get in the way of these guys and, and do that. I think what got undersold over time and, and not the Soviet skill was obviously on display, but I think underestimated was the skill of the Canadians too, that they were still great hockey players and, and that they did evolve as that series went on. But the other side of it is, and, you know, I mentioned Bobby Clark and, you know, game six where he, he slashes Harlem off on the ankle and fractures his ankle or so. Um, and he wasn't vilified at the time, but he has been since. And as so many players came to his defense and said, like the other guys were just as mean and dirty as us. They just did it in a different way. They were sneaky dirty. And, you know, Brad Park again, and, and Ron Ellis tell a story of how after the one game, there's a melee in the, in the corner and Mihailov, uh, one of the very good players on the Soviet team, he kicked Gary Bergman in the shin. And the equipment back then wasn't what it is today. And the skate blade went right, right through his shin pad into his shin. And after the game, Bergman takes off his skate, turns it upside down, and there's a, a pool of blood that flows out of it. And they said, well, yeah, I guess those guys are kind of nasty too. And so I, th I think a bit of it got a little bit the Canadians certainly were portrayed as being the criminals, but I, you know, and they were physical and there's a lot of dirty stuff, but the other guys did it too, because both sides desperately wanted to win. And I wouldn't think of uh, Bobby Clark and maybe I'm sounding like a Homer here as being a rough and tumble type of player. Cause you had guys like Dave Schultz and, you know, there were guys who were, or I should say other guys who were enforcers per se, that, that got down and dirty and such. But I'm curious to know, and obviously you go more in detail into the book about this, Alan Eagleson, who was a hockey agent and later head of the Players Association 
was part of the conversation to say, hey, why don't we get this together? So what actually happened to get as far as the discussions to, hey, let's look into this? Yeah, well, I was just going to say, well, Bobby, you know, he wasn't a, a brawler from a fighting standpoint, but he would put a stick in there and he was he's a competitor. He still yeah. is. Like he's not afraid to take a poke at you if, if that's what needs to be done. Whatever it takes to win, that's what he will do. And that's what he did in that series. And he was one of the best players in that series from start to finish and unheralded going into it, wasn't supposed to make the team. So, but Eagleson was a, a big part of it. Um, is he and uh, Bobby Orr and Carl Brewer um, and a few other people were at Eagleson's cottage one summer and they had, it was the 1966 World Cup of Soccer was going on. And that was the year that England won. And they were listening to it and, and Eagleson's kind of turned to them and said, like, why can't we have something like this for hockey, but do it with our best professionals, not the amateurs, because at the time, the world championships and uh, and the Olympics from North America, only amateurs could go. And so that sort of hatched the idea from his side of it. And as I mentioned, the, the Canadian prime minister at the time, Trudeau, was looking for something. There was a lot of uh, a lot of angst in Canada because our amateurs weren't winning on the international level and because of all of the other things that were happening culturally and politically that he thought, you know, maybe getting a series together would be something that could kind of bridge the gap. And even though the Cold War was on, the U.S. and, and the Soviets were totally apart, Canada still had relations with the Soviets at that time. And that was another way to try and harvest a little more detente between the, the two countries, the two nations. And as they say, the Soviets were looking to kind of expand their horizon on a hockey level. So in, in many ways, you had sort of three different forces come together independently to create that series. And But as I mentioned, it was never from the Canadian side of it, the North American side of it. It was never expected to be the series that it was. It was going to be a, an expression of greatness, but the greatness of how the NHLers would dominate the Soviets. And uh, as it turned out, they, it was an expression of greatness on just different levels in a different way. Well, how did it go about? Well, I guess I'll combine this question here. How did, once they, the ball gets rolling, how did they come up with the scheduling of the games, but also what guys they would invite to play because you mentioned Bobby Orr earlier and I don't remember what the injury would have been at the time, but he couldn't play. Right. So he actually talked to Phil Esposito in playing. So obviously then there was the whole NHL versus WHA whole thing. If you're under contract and such. So how did the scheduling of things come along and how did they go about saying, what players they wanted to invite to play for Team Canada? So from the scheduling perspective, is that Canada was supposed to host the World Championships in 1970 in Montreal and Winnipeg. And because, again, there was this big battle about allowing professionals to play versus amateurs at that level. Canada pulled out of the international hockey and still this this series came to be in large part, again, because the Soviets were pushing for it quietly. Um, 
So then they, they decided that would, they would do the four games in Canada. And then they were supposed to play originally, not just in Moscow, but in St. Petersburg and maybe Leningrad. And for whatever reason, that kind of fell apart. And it was just going to be the four games in Moscow. And as I mentioned, the, the two exhibitions in Sweden in between and the final game in Czechoslovakia. And uh, again, because it was not supposed to be this great intense thing, so many people thought that they scheduled those extra games and it was just this cruise across Canada, go across the other side of the pond and everybody's going to have a great time and a vacation and all the rest of it and play some hockey. And, uh, but it became much, much more. And then it, it became political from a, a hockey standpoint over here because the WHA was just launching and a lot of the Amer- uh, owners of the American NHL teams at the time, there were a dozen didn't want, they didn't care about Canada playing the Soviets and they didn't want any involvement. So Eagleson and Clarence Campbell at the time with the NHL president and, uh, and some other owners convinced them to, this would be a good game for the a good thing for the game. They'd, there would be some revenue streams out of it. There'd be money put into the players' pension funds that they wouldn't have to contribute. And, uh, but one of the stipulations was that you had to be signed to an NHL contract to participate. Um, if you were going to the WHA or didn't have a contract, then you weren't allowed to be there. And that's why Bobby Hall wasn't there. Jerry Cheevers wasn't there. Derek Sanderson, JC Trombley, a few others. And it was very controversial. In the case of Bobby Orr, the Bruins had won the Stanley Cup that spring and he played on one leg as he did most of his career and had to have knee surgery. And so he just, is, he tried to, he came partway through training camp and tested the knee, but it wasn't ready. And he stuck with the team all the way through from start to finish. And he tried to play again when, by the time they got to, uh, to Moscow, but the knee still wasn't there, but uh, he was still there as a big supporter of the group. So the other side of that schedule and the players would be officiating. So, and obviously you said Canada had pulled out of the international and all, or the international play side of things, I should say. So how did they go come to compromise and say, all right, we're going to, here's how we're going to set up the official. So I think once again, uh, you know, to pull everything together, there's give and take in terms of negotiations of how this thing's going to unfold and what it's going to look like and how it's going to operate. And I think one of the concessions that Eagleson and the NHL group uh, basically agreed to was, again, thinking that this was not going to be an intense series. It was going to be a walkover that, okay, you can have your international officials. So for the four games in Canada, they had uh, there was four U.S. officials, and then for the games in, in Moscow, they had European officials. Two of them were from West Germany, which at the time was basically under Soviet control and, uh, you know, communist country. And that became really greasy because they were, those guys were intimidated and they were calling the game to a certain degree in the, in the favor of the Soviets because of what they were feeling, pressures off the ice and all of that. So. Uh, as it evolved, or it turned out rather, 
the officiating wasn't at the level that was really required for NHL players and the Soviet players who were at NHL level. It was thought that this would be an okay kind of amateur event. And the way that the NHLers were going to play the game, they weren't, the officials weren't prepared or, or, or worthy of calling the play at that level, which is the, they got outmatched. And obviously when they were over in Europe and Russia and stuff, there was some guys who left the team to head home for their professional commitments. Were they kicked off the team or what actually was the story there? Yeah, they've been unfairly portrayed over time as being, I mean, a lot of them when they came back to Canada, the first four or five players, they were portrayed as being traitors. And and that wasn't fair because what ultimately happened is that, you know, after the first four games in Canada where, you know, they lose the first one, win the second one, tie, then a loss, and now they're in desperate straits. They do their stint in Sweden. They get to Moscow. And Harry Sinden and John Ferguson, who were the coaches of the team, realized they they had to invite 35 players to training camp to be able to have exhibition games because there's no other teams to play in the summer at that time. So they had to have inter-squad games. And so they had to invite a lot of players. And they had to invite a lot of players because not everyone was excited to be there. And then so they had to sort of convince them, come along for the ride. It's going to be a good time. And what they quickly learned, because again, being surprised by how well the Soviets played and how talented they were and prepared they were, that they couldn't guarantee everybody playing time. They had to cut the roster down. They had to get down to like a 20, 21, 22 player team and, and ride that team through and and so Sinden really made that realization while they had their pit stop in Sweden. And he told the team, here's the guys that are going to play over these final four games. If um, the rest of you, if you want to go back to your, a lot of them were getting pressure from their NHL teams to come back to training camp during that time. And he said, if you, if you want to go back to your teams, that's okay. We understand, but this is what we feel we have to do. And if you want to stay, then you'll be a part of the team somehow. But uh, some got pressure from the teams to go back and some just said, the heck with it. No point sitting here. I'll go back and prepare with my team and play exhibition games and do all of that. And all of that was supposed to have been announced to the media and the public at the time by Eagleson. And it didn't happen. And so it was, ultimately came out as that these guys just basically defected the team in a snip when they were really told that, no, you're not going to be part of that final roster that we have to get down to. And uh, so they took a beating when they got back from the media and the public. And that's really unfair. Yeah. And obviously the story's been told, but Liam actually did give me one question he wanted to ask as we uh, get close to the end here. Obviously, many people stateside remember the goal from the goal heard around the world from the Miracle on Ice. But during this series, towards the end, Paul Henderson had that shot towards the end of the game eight, if I remember correctly, that helped lead Team Canada to the 6-5 victory of that game. You know, Canada won the series four to three and a tie in there 
from a record standpoint. But Liam was curious to know your opinion. And this might be country biased or whatever you want to call it. But would the Miracle on Ice goal or would it be Paul's goal be more of a uh, more important goal in in terms of hockey history? I think I think Paul's goal is bigger in terms of hockey history because it it changed the game. I mean, the Canada winning and coming back the way they did and how that series unfolded, as we say in the title, changed the game forever. And it, you know, the doors probably would have opened over time, but they opened a lot sooner in terms of more international best on best competitions. We saw the Canada Cups and eventually when the Iron Curtain fell. Um, that players were able to come, European players uh, were able to come to play in the NHL without defecting from their countries, you know, the way the Stasnys had and, and, and a few of the Russian players, Soviet players. Um, so it changed the game so dramatically that way. And just how both cultures, hockey cultures, learned from each other after that and, and changed and developed and grew what I would say is that the Miracle on Ice was huge in its own way because probably what it meant for hockey in the USA and how it exploded the game there. Wayne Gretzky going there was a huge part when he went to L.A. was a huge part of growth of hockey in America. And I think the Miracle on Ice was another huge growth spurt for hockey uh, in that country. And so and again, uh, a growth spurt internationally and, and and so different in the sense that you know the Canada Soviet series in 72 was eight games two teams the Miracle on Ice was their one huge they had a lot of huge moments in that Olympics but they only had to have that one game to beat the Soviets and then of course I think it was the Finns that they had to beat to ultimately win the gold medal but but both hugely important impactful in their own ways different but impactful i'd agree and most people think that the miracle on ice was the as far as that major goal and beating the russians at the time that was the gold medal game but that really wasn't no. you, uh, but unfortunately some people thought that but al michaels and ken dryden do you believe in miracles i'll never forget that call i mean i can hear it in my head Yes. Unbelievable. So with all this being said with this summit series and how everything played out, what do you think is the biggest change that it not only made to the game, but the system and big picture? Did it help everything overall, would you say, in terms of not only the game, but the political side of things too? Well, certainly from the game perspective, it, it, uh, it broke down walls that existed. It, as I say, it created Canada Cups. It created um, other series between Soviets and NHL. You know, the 79 Challenge Cup. They had Rendezvous 87, all of that sort of thing. International hockey with the, you know, Canada, US and, and the European countries exploded after that. We learned from each other and how how we trained, how we played, how we practiced. There was a great exchange of knowledge that evolved out of that. Um, 
you know, and then there's a, there's a great quote from Phil Esposito in the book where he says, you know, we look at hockey now and we don't look at a player and say, you're a Canadian, you're American, you're a Russian, you're a Czech, you're a Swede, you're a Finn. We just look at and say, you're a really good player and you're, you're all trying to win the same prize at the end of it, whether it's a, a Stanley Cup or an Olympic or, you know, you just look at them. They're hockey players. We don't have, we don't think nationality. Maybe when it comes to Olympic, you do because of how that process works. But, uh, you know, they, so much changed in, uh, in how we evolved on and off the ice because of that series. Well, I'm going to be putting links to where people can get the book on all outlets of this. So I appreciate the time, Scott, but I'm curious to know, non-related to the series, and I know this can be, this is one of those questions as we wrap here, that can be debated over cold beer all day long when it comes to the game of hockey, but best player you've ever seen in your lifetime. Well, I saw Gordy Howe, I saw Jean Beliveau, I saw Bobby Orr, saw Wayne Gretzky. I'm seeing Nathan McKinnon, I'm seeing Connor McDavid, I'm seeing Austin Matthews, I've seen Bobby Hall, others. Uh, you know, I think if Bobby Orr had a, if those knees hadn't given out. I mean, he changed the game so dramatically and was so amazing. And then I, I saw Gretzky from start to finish in his career. And he just, he changed the game as well. I was, I, I, I sort of hate the comparisons of, because different years are make it different than the greatness. Different rules, different, you know. Yeah, all the rest of it. So all of those names and, and so many more, I'm sure. I guess... To me, the great one is still Gretzky. I just seeing what he did night in, night out was just absolutely amazing. And again, had Bobby just been a little bit healthier for a little bit longer and had he been able to, he came in the 76 Canada Cup and was the best player in that tournament. And I can only think of where his star would shine if had he been part of that 72 series on the ice as opposed to off it. Yeah, it's, I say this tongue in cheek as well, but I say Bobby Orr is like the Mickey Mantle of hockey in terms of, like you were saying there, if his knees held up a little more, man, what would he have been from here to, you know what I mean? That next, but you know, you bring up 76 and I promise this is the final question for me because obviously you think of the Soviet teams that came over to and they toured in North America. They played different NHL teams and obviously the last couple against the Flyers and the whole Ed Snyder blow up and all that fun stuff because Van Imp. Yeah. <laughs> so do you think 76 would you say was really the last grasp for the Soviets in terms of their greatness? Um well, maybe had, 72 from this series, that team. Was. Well, 72 was a shining moment for them. There's no question. 76, you know, they didn't make it to the final. Czechs played Canada in the final of that Canada Cup. And it's funny because in 72, after they signed the agreement to play the Summit Series, 
after they dominated so many years at the world championships, the Czechs won that world championship. So they kind of had a bit of a, some awkward moments in and around 72. Um, but, you know, they came back and they killed Canada eight to one in the 81 Canada cup. So they came back there and then, you know, when was it 87, I guess was the year the iron curtain came down and then every change, everything changed. And, uh, and so, you know, hockey on both sides of the pond became different as a result of that. So, uh, uh, yeah, they still had a last hurrah in 81 where they were pretty good. <laughs> well, the book's 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Scott Morrison, thank you so much. Thank you, Jonathan. And the Bernoulli has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for fell. Here's another shot right by the door. Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> now that's what I call depressing. It's gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, Wrinkled Ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while Sincere Black 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open. <laughs> Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Far thing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub, or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS.
Howdy folks, Clint Larchuk here, former NHL goaltender, and you are listening to Crazy Train Radio. 